Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za It really became clear to me that the best way for us to understand it, to get the essence of Stephen's message is to deal with it one time in the same way that he delivered it at once. So uh, we're going to be considering it this morning. My first question to you as we begin is, do you know anyone who is stubborn? Anyone who is very stubborn? Perhaps you yourself are known by your friends or those in your life as the stubborn person. And I've noticed that recently that being stubborn is something that people pride themselves on these days. I'm, this is, I'm, I, I, I keep my way, I go in the direction that I want. A story is told of a customer who walked into a clothing shop and, and asked to see the pants that were advertised in, in today's paper uh, in the shop that day. And the, the store owner says, no, we don't, we don't have an ad in the paper today. You didn't see it from us. And she insisted that the owner was wrong. No, 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 you're wrong. You're, you're definitely wrong. I saw uh, an ad from this store regarding some pants and I want those pants. So he got a copy of the paper she's talking about and they went through it. Eventually, they landed on an ad for pants from another local store, not this one. And so exasperated, the customer angrily looked at the shop owner and said, well, in my copy of the paper, it was this shop. (laughs) We're all familiar with this kind of stubbornness. But there is a a stubbornness that is far more destructive, that is far more problematic than this small story or the small stubbornnesses that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. And that is a stubbornness towards God. You see, whether or not you are stubborn between people and you're, you're, you're in your discussions, you're stubborn, you don't want to listen, that, has, that might have consequences, it usually does. But a, a stubbornness, a resistance to God and to His revealed Word is far more destructive. In Stephen's testimony this morning, we will be listening to the story of God and Israel, where God is the consistent Savior and the Israelites are the consistent rebels. God saves, they rebel. And so forth. It goes on and on. God saves and they continue to rebel. Stephen's testimony in his own defense here turns into an accusation against the people of Israel. Where Stephen himself is on trial, uh, he turns the table and says, no, 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 you guys are on trial. This whole system, this whole system that's putting me on trial, you are the ones who are actually on the trial. You are the ones who persist in your own ways. You are the ones that are truly wrong in God's eyes. And you are the ones who are going to be judged, not me. And as Stephen responds to them, we will do well as God's people, those whom the ends of the ages have come, we will do well to learn the lesson. 
And here's the lesson, just right off the bat. Here's the lesson. God is to be obeyed. God, the supreme being, the maker of everything, is to be listened to. God prizes the reception of His people's efforts. Sorry, of His people in His efforts to save them. He prizes that reception. That when God does something on behalf of His people, that they receive it well. Remember when we left off things last week? Stephen was raised up. He was anointed as one of the seven to, to, to lead the church into this uh, into the, the, the complication that they were having regarding the division of food. And then Stephen's ministry is powerful. It's apostolic. He's preaching. And then his enemies from the Hellenistic Jews, those Jews from North Africa, Asia, uh, uh, and Europe, uh, so from the Roman world, they rise up, all of them from different synagogues around uh, the Roman world, they rise up to, to, to fight with him. And then they find false witnesses to accuse him of two things. Do you remember what we saw there in verse, in chapter 6, verse 4, uh, sorry, I lost my place here. In, in chapter 6, here in verse 14. Oh, well, let's start from verse 13. They, they, they bring him to the council, in front of the council, the Sanhedrin of Israel. And these false witnesses bring up a testimony. They say, this man never ceases to do two things. To speak words against this holy place, this temple, this Jerusalem, this seat of the Judaism religion. He, this man is always speaking against it. That's the first accusation. And the second, he says, Oh, he says, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change. Here's the second one. And he will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So the, the accusation is this, that he, he is against the temple and this special place. And that he is against the Mosaic law, Moses' law, which is the very cornerstone of, of uh, which is the very cornerstone of the of Judaism of the of the Israelite religion and now as as Stephen stands in front of the council in verse 15 we are told his face is like the face of an angel you see that in verse 15 his face as they're gazing at him and they're looking at him his face is like the face of an angel what does that mean well that simply means that is an unusual way it's not very normal in the Bible to say that but it is essentially saying that his face looked bright with glory as one who has been in the presence of God. His face is shining with glory. He looks like he's just been with God. Just like angels are with God and they come and they're, they're shining bright. It's the same thing with Stephen. As he is about to speak, as he is about to, pr- to produce his own testimony in his own defense, his face is shining as though he had been with God. And that should remind the Israelites and you of one particular of one particular thing. Moses coming down from the from the mountain having been with God with his face shining. And so what, what is happening here is the testimony he is about to bring is being confirmed by God. While he is on trial among the people of Israel, he is on trial, his guilt is yet to be determined. By his face shining, God is giving his verdict. This man 
is speaking on my behalf. And now I am anointing him a prophet in front of you to give you a word that you need to listen to, dear Israelites. That's, what, that's the meaning of, of chapter 15. And so they ask him in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 7, Are these things so? Meaning, do you, are you really against the temple? Are you really speaking that the temple is going to be destroyed? And are you really against Moses? Are you really against the, the Mosaic law, the law uh, that is the cornerstone of our entire religion? And his response has two threads, contains two threads. First, he will show that God throughout his dealings in biblical history has never been confined to this holy place. And second, he will show that the Israelites are the ones actually who have a history of not listening to the saviors that God sends to them. He interweaves these two threads. These are the main two lines of argument responding to the two accusations against him. And he interweaves them in a wonderful narrative story telling the history of the Israelites but making a point about these two principles, these two ideas that God has never been confined to this holy place that you guys hold so dear. And number two, that you are actually the ones who have a history of not obeying the saviors that God sends to you. And so rather than go through the whole, so the whole testimony here verse by verse from verse 1 to verse 53, we're rather going to look at it from the perspective of those two, uh, those two lines of evidence, those two points which he makes. And so we're first going to begin where he begins. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land, from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring will be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave, them the, they gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the, 12, the father of the twelve patriarchs. He begins here by calling the, the God of Israel the God of glory. That is weighty Old Testament language. He is not just a God. He is not just the God of the peoples. He is the God of, the God of weight. The God of majesty. The God whose magnitude is felt. He is the God of glory. But where did this God of glory, this majestic God whose, whose glory is not made by human hands, where did that God appear to Abraham? Did he appear to him in this temple that you guys hold so dear? Did he appear to him in Jerusalem? No, he appeared to him in Mesopotamia. 
Not in this land where they are and not in the temple that they're in. The most consequential promise in the mind of the Jews, the promise that they swear by, this is like the main thing. You know, if you, if you meet people, they have their thing that they, that they are really are big on. This is who we are. Well, the Jews, it's the fact that they are the children of Abraham. But that promise that made Abraham, Abraham, was made by God not in a temple and was made by God not in Jerusalem, but in a land far away. And he emphasizes this in verse 5 by explaining that Abraham did not even get a foot length of this land. Do you understand this? Abraham was promised this land. It's a special land. But Abraham himself never actually had a house in it. He never had a part of the promise. He never participated in it. He, never, he was never there himself. He died. And it was spoken for the benefit of his children. Abraham, the great, the great patriarch, never lived in this special holy place that you Jews are speaking so highly of. It was an inheritance for you, his descendants, but he never enjoyed it. And yet God spoke his promise. And verse 6 to 8 serves to show that the promise came to be. The promise came to be. Just because the promise was spoken in Mesopotamia, not in this temple, because it was spoken in Mesopotamia, not in Jerusalem, it still had effect. It, was, it still came to being. It did not need the temple. It did not need Jerusalem for it to be effective. It was no less divine. It was no less trustworthy because of the location from which it was said. And he continues this thread. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into where? To Egypt. But who was with him in Egypt? God was with him. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over all Egypt and over all his household. And then there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan with great affliction. And our fathers themselves could not be saved. They did not have a place to go. But God used this very same Joseph that he was with working in, in Egypt to bring relief to our fathers. In verse 15. And Jacob went down to Egypt, into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, and there they carried back, they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Jo- Joseph's brothers sold him. God was with him, and God was with him in the midst of hectic idolatry in Egypt. God's friendship was with Joseph in the midst of an idolatrous land. God was with him, working for him, working in him outside of this temple, outside of Jerusalem. And preserving, not just was God working for Joseph, but he was working to preserve the nation of Israel in a man who was in Egypt. You see, for God to work, he did not need this holy place. He did not need this temple. He was working in Egypt. Thirdly, he shows... After speaking about the rise of Moses in verses 17 to 30, which we will look at in a moment, he then turns to the famous story of Moses' call to ministry. And he emphasizes, he takes time to emphasize the story. What happened there? Well, look with me at verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed 
an angel appeared to him, Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look, and there came the voice of Yahweh. There came, in a bush, not in this temple, in a bush, there came the voice of the Lord. And he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. I have touched down on the earth to deliver my people. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. Here we see Moses meeting with God at Mount Sinai. And the place where Moses was standing is declared by God as holy ground. In fact, wherever the tent of meeting was, after Moses was moving with the people of Israel in the wilderness, wherever the tent of meeting was, we see in verse 38, as the people are traveling, that place is called a holy place. That place is called the tent of witness. There were rules as to how to approach the tabernacle. While in the Jewish mind, the temple is everything, for God, clearly it is not. And if you still need to be convinced, if, you, if you're not getting, if you're, you're still thinking, no, this, this place is really special, God is really here, it's a wonderful thing. Well, then look at the last line of evidence regarding this that, that, that he brings forth from verse 44. Look at what he says in verse 44, Stephen. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they they dispossessed the nations that God drove out from our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet... The Most High does not dwell in in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my own hand make all of these things? Even after Solomon, the son of David, built that the spectacular temple, that first temple, the one when they couldn't reproduce it later on, they wept. Even after he produced that wonderful temple, it still must be said, the prophet still says, that God does not dwell in houses made by hands. So in summary, God spoke to Abraham not in the temple. God's favor was with Joseph in Egypt without a temple. God appeared to Moses at Sinai without a temple. The people traveled in the wilderness in a tent of witness. And even when the glorious first temple was built, it was pronounced that God does not need it to dwell in because he does not dwell in houses built with hands. What are the implications of this? What are the implications? What are we to take from this first Uh, point that Stephen makes over and over again in different ways. Well, first, to the immediate audience, to the, the people who are listening to him as he's speaking. He's speaking to the Israelites, and he's speaking to them. To the immediate audience, here's the implication. 
Your system of religion was for a time. It was never permanent. Your system of religion was never permanent. Judaism is a religion out of time. Once the fulfillment of the law came, Jesus Christ, the true temple was revealed and Judaism is now obsolete. We must understand this clearly, dear friends, even us today. Judaism and Christianity are not coexisting religions. The one was supposed to die off to give way to the other. Remember, Noah did not have Judaism. Abraham did not have Judaism. Joseph did not have Judaism. Judaism, with its temple and its law, only began with Moses, with Moses, and it was always for a time. This is the argument of the book of Galatians. Paul even says there that the law came 430 years after the promise. The promise to Abraham regarding Abraham's seed and the nations is not now made now by the law. Now, if you want to tie yourself to Judaism... If you want to tie yourself to circumcision and, 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 and having you know, gloomy, wonderful eyes regarding Jerusalem and the Holy Land, you might as well look for whatever place that Noah worshipped in because it is just as obsolete. You might as well go ahead and look for the place that Adam was worshipping in because it is just as obsolete. There is no more temple. And there is none of this coming, there is no temple that is coming with Moses' law to be reinstated for a thousand years. There's no such thing in the scriptures. The, the law of Moses was for a time, it was a, a, a guardian for a time, for a specific purpose. And then once the fulfillment came, the man Jesus Christ appeared, everything was culminating on him. I want you to understand me clearly, friends, because I understand Christians have a soft spot for Jews and Judaism in their hearts. Now understand why. Our Savior was a Jew. Our, the people that we read that we love were Jews. Paul was a Jew. Wonderful. That's true. And it's, it's good for you if, you if you have a soft spot. It's, that's not a problem. But you must have a very clear distinction in your mind. There is no two ways to God. There is no Judaism. The Jews can sneak in that way. And Christianity the side. There is no two ways. It is Christianity or judgment. Those are the options. You either follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you obey Him, you, 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 you receive His free gift of life, or you be judged. There's no other place that you can qualify to go in just because you were born in the Middle East. Or you have a heritage that comes from the Middle East. The only choice, the only choices given to mankind is believe in Christ or continue on your way to eternal death. There is no, there's no, there's no separate gospel for the Jews. Hey, the Jews, as long as they just, they just, they just keep to the law that they have and they, they pray the Old Testament prayers the way they're doing that. There's none of that. They reject the Messiah. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. That's the first thing. That's the, that's the main implication here to the, to the people in front of him. But here's, a, here's, a, here's something more broad and more for us. And hear me clearly, dear Christians, dear church, hear me. A, a temple or a, a spiritual holy place does not 
produce holiness. A, 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 a religious, special place does not produce holiness. Only Christ through the Spirit does. Would your religion be easier if I said all you had to do was go to this place in Melville once a week and you're fine? Would your religion be easier if I said to you once a year, go on some trek somewhere and just save enough money to travel to some special place with some special land somewhere and you will be fine? Well, of course it would be. Those are things that are attainable. We can attain to that. I just need to just tick that box and I'm fine. Of, of course it is. But the answer here is that those things do not make you more holy. Whether you go to this particular place that's special, you pay your temple tax, you do all the good things when you get there, that does not make you more holy and it does not gain you favor with God. If the answer is yes, if, that, if, if these religious pilgrimages that are throughout the world in many different religions, these religious pilgrimages actually produced friendship with God and actually produced holiness, then all the religious people would be holy, wouldn't they? All the religious people would be great. They would be eschewing. But you and I know, just even from practical experience, that just because somebody has gone to the Vatican does not make them holy and righteous in their practice in life. Temples, special religious buildings, special religious experiences do not produce the righteousness you're looking for. Special locations do not give you friendship with God. Going to a special place is not your ticket to friendship with God. You can go to the special place your entire life and Jesus says to you at the end, I never knew you, get away from me. The ZCC can go to Mount Moriah all they want. They will never gain friendship with God or overcome their sins because of it. The Charismatics can go to a worship concert all they want. They will never produce any change in their, in their lives except for, heightened except for heightened emotions for a moment. The Muslims can go to Mecca all they want. They will not gain a covenant with God or a transformative religious experience with lasting effects. Christian Zionists can go to Jerusalem all they want, to the Holy Land, but that will not produce anything more in them beyond excitement and temporary motivation. Going to a special religious location, my friends, is no different than a New Year's resolution. It's no different. It can get you excited for a time, but it will not produce what you want. By March, you've forgotten about it. It's the same. You can go to the special place, you can go to that wonderful pastor, that go to that conference that you want to go to with that celebrity pastor that you worship. Go, go, it's fine. He'll motivate you for a moment, but that's not what's going to be what's going to produce the lasting effects. Do you want to know what produces lasting results? Do you want to know what produces, what actually gains you friendship with Christ? What gains you friendship with God? And what actually changes you little by little into the image of Jesus Christ like you want to be, dear Christian? Do you want to know what it is? Jesus Christ. It's wonderful when you're in church, the answer is always Jesus Christ, isn't it? At Bible class, when I ask a question, I think people just find it very easy to just say, Jesus? 
because maybe the answer's there. But true, it's Jesus. That is the good news. If you want to be known by God, you don't need to drive anywhere. Just go on your knees and call out to the name that has been given to everybody for salvation. If you want to be known by God, if you want to have life eternal, if you want freedom from the captivity of sin that you are struggling with, you don't need an airplane ticket. You don't even need ESCOM to be working. You just need to go on your knees and cry out to that name. If you are struggling with sin, dear Christian, you are not lacking any experience. There's no experience that you need. There's no second blessing of any sort. There's no some kind of thing that you need to get. If you're, you, if you, if you, if you're struggling with your sin, this is what you need to think. You need to think of your heart as flour. And the gospel of Jesus Christ as the yeast. And your job and your task is to try and get that yeast throughout the whole flower. You want to get the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ, as the foundation that will change and produce the transformation that you need. It is not found in fads. It is not found in things that are transient, things that are, that are at this location or that location. It is found in just coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, adoring Him, meditating on Him, thinking on His excellencies, having fellowship, walking with the Son of God, walking with Him, meditating on His Word and what He says, and, and, and loving Him, adoring Him. That's where you will find transformation. It is as you behold the glorious Son of Man that you are changed into His image. We become what we worship. That's what we become. If you are worshipping all kinds of nonsensical things, that's what you will become. If you spend time with people who say corrupt things all the time, that's what you will become. If you spend time through the eye gate watching things that are filth, that's what you will become. But if you spend time, this principle is free. Because if you spend time at the, foot, at the feet of Jesus... With his word, with his people, longing for him, searching for him, wanting to see him. That's what's going to produce the change you need. In one sense, there is a temple, but it's everywhere. It's wherever I go down on my knees and look up to the Son of Man. That's what we need. Not a place, not an experience, and not another person or another mediator, but Christ and Christ alone. The second line of evidence, the second thing, so he's spoken about the temple, that this special temple that you Jews think is so special is not so special. Then the second line of evidence that he weaves throughout his speech is this, that the Jews themselves are the ones who have always rejected the man God is bringing to them. God, throughout their history, selects men from among the Jews who will be their saviors. And the Jews have a consistent record of rejecting him, rejecting that man. Come back with me for a second to verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, what did they do? They sold him into Egypt. It begins there. With the patriarchs, with the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, right at the kernel, right at birth. 
this rejection of the Savior that God raises from among them began right at the beginning of Jewish history. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Israel. And Joseph was chosen by God as the one who's going to bring them relief from the famine. And God raised him up among them and he gave him these dreams and they found serious jealousy from these dreams. They could not handle that God is raising up one of them and not them. Why would God raise you up? You're even young and why you love so much? Why would God exalt you? No ways. And so what do they do? You remember the story, don't you? They sold him to Egypt. In fact, even that was like a really a, a, a plan B. Plan A was to kill him. They, tr- they were trying to kill him, but uh, the first son felt differently about that and they ended up selling him. The second figure is Moses. After Joseph had, had saved Israel from famine and they came to Egypt and became numerous, many years later a new pharaoh showed up who didn't know uh, Joseph and the history and he oppressed the Israelites. And so again, God raises a man, Moses, to be their deliverer. But the theme of Moses' ministry is this. He is rejected at every point. Look at verse, look at verse 22. When the story is Moses is being, is being rather, sorry, verse 23. Uh, when he was 40 years old, after, so after the, he's just spoken about his birth and how he came to be. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Look at verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they didn't get it. They did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and trying to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us. You want to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? There, right there. He's rejected by his own. Even though he's being raised up in their midst by God to be their savior, they're not getting it and they reject him. God then calls him at Sinai like we read a moment ago and he sends him to his people in verse 34. And when he gets to those people, as the savior... As the savior, God has, the savior that God has chosen for them, look at what they do. Read with me from verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. But here's verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And they said, well, make make a calf for us that we'll worship, and we don't know what's happened to this Moses. Moses 
was proven time and time again to be the man that God has as a savior for the people of Israel. He performed wonderful miracles. He, He received living oracles. And yet his word was consistently rejected by the Israelites, even to a point of making a golden calf. See, Stephen is painting the people of Israel here as having a habit. You know, some of us have a habit. Every now and again we try to stop the habit. Because that's a bad habit. You know, you you bite your nails or you say, um, um, when you're talking in front of people. It's a habit. It happens just naturally. You're trying to stop it from happening. Well, Stephen is painting the people of Israel as having one recurring habit throughout their generations. They reject their saviors. They oppress their saviors. They reject the men that God uses to save them. That's what they do. That is their habit. He could have continued. I imagine he stopped here because of time. He could have continued to the many prophets that they killed. He could have spoken of Jeremiah that they oppressed and didn't listen to. The weeping prophet. He could have spoken about many other men. To show that the people of Israel have a knack. As a summary of his whole testimony, he brings the entire episode, this entire story now, he brings it all to bear on their shoulders here in verse 51. And he says to them this, You Israelites are stiff-necked. You are a stiff-necked bunch. Look at what he says to them as his final word in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The sum total of his whole testimony is that you Israelites fancy yourselves so passionate about the law of God and so passionate about the temple and yet you have consistently rejected it from the beginning. You have consistently rejected your saviors. You have consistently rejected Moses and his law. And interestingly enough, unlike the testimonies given by the apostles so far. You remember the testimony given in chapter 4 and the testimony given in chapter 5 to the same council? There is no hope given here to these men. In chapter 4, Peter hurled out a hand saying, there's hope if you call on Christ. In chapter 5, he did a similar thing. We're going to keep preaching this and this is the one that saves all men. But here, it ends almost abruptly with a hectic accusation to them. You are stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in heart and ear. You see, by Stephen's estimation, we have in front of us a group of people who are zealous for the law but do not keep it. They are passionate, very much so, but they do not honor the God who speaks through the law. They are very zealous, but they do not honor God. They do not honor the, the, the lawgiver. And they certainly are not sensitive to his leading. They're not sensitive to his spirit, to what he is saying, to what he is saying at the moment. They do not want to listen. Dear saints, I hope you can feel the warning here even before I say it. 
I hope the implication is becoming clear to you. We here at Heritage, we love the Word of God. We prize it. We care about it. And we set, our, we set ourselves against anyone who would twist it, and rightfully so. It is good for us to love God's Word and to prize it. Oh, but dear church, dear beloved of God, there is a real danger that we could be hot and passionate and still resist God. There is a real danger that in our zeal and our passion to love the Word and to love the law, we could still be in some areas that are dear to us, resisting God. Let me talk for a moment with the young people in the church, especially those new to the doctrines of grace with a great passion. Listen to me. Your heads can get fat with knowledge and fat, your hearts can get fat with religious zeal, but your hearts can remain uncircumcised if you don't personally, as a lifestyle, bend to the will of God. You can be very hot. Young people, you guys who are great, all about the, the doctrines of grace and all these big names and big words that you love. It's wonderful. It's good. But listen, that is not a measure of your righteousness. The measure of your righteousness is whether or not do you bend at the word of God. Are you like aluminium? When God bends you and bends you, you bend slightly ever so, but you bend in that direction. Or are you like a hot rod of iron? You don't move. You're stiff-necked. Even though you love the big doctrines and you, you, you're zealous. You have to remember, dear friends, the rabbis, the lawyers, the scribes, the Sadducees, they all spent hours and hours discussing God's word. But when the Messiah was in front of them, when the word of God himself was standing in front of them, they rejected him. They were spending hours discussing, arguing, making, making big categories, having different views of thought, this thought and that thought, having all kinds of things. But when the Logos himself was standing in front of them, the author of the word of God, the word of God himself was here speaking life to them, they rejected him. It is just because you spend all these hours studying all these things does not mean that you are bending to the will of God. Bending to the will of God means that as a lifestyle, you obey Him. As a lifestyle, you are sensitive to Him. To the older saints in the church, to the older saints who are in one way set already in your ways, let me encourage you as my mothers and fathers in Christ, let me encourage you be very careful of willful disobedience. Be very careful of willful disobedience. Be very careful of expecting that you are always right. Be very careful that now because you've had so many years of following the Lord and so many years of doing things this way, that no one can challenge you. No one can challenge your way of life because this is how you've always done it. My mothers and fathers, let me encourage you, be very aware of that thing. Because it is possible that while you have organized your life that way, that you are wrong. It is possible. You must have as your own personal motto of life, dear saints, the reformation call to always reform. Sampa reformanda. Always reforming. Always wanting to be where God calls me to be. 
Think of this. No one. Well, let me just ask it to you as a question. Do you know of anyone in the Bible who was judged by God because they were because they were too sensitive to the Word of God? Do you know of anyone who was judged by God because they heard the Word of God and they immediately went and tried to change their whole life because they were trying to respond to the Word of God? No, not one. There's no such thing as being too sensitive to the Word of God. But have you heard, can you think of examples in the Bible of people who hardened their hearts when God was speaking? And what happened to them? When people were were being told, listen, you're walking in this direction, but look at what God's Word says here. You need to change, you need to shift, you need to go in this other direction. And they say, no, this is the way that I've always done it. This is the way that it's going to be done. What's the end of those people in the scriptures? Do not be stiff. Do not refuse to bend. Bend. When God says this, bend. When God says this way, bend. Do not be stiff. To the rest of us, to everyone. Listen, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know exactly where it is that you struggle to obey the word of God. But let me tell you this. You also have to bend. All of us need to have a conscience that bends. There will be people who are judged by God because they have seared, they have made parts of themselves hard. Certain things, just, you can't question me, you can't challenge me on this. Bend to the Word of God. Seek the Word of God. Seek the Savior in the Word of God and bend towards to the direction that he says. You see, here's what's happened here. These guys, they harden their hearts. And he calls them three things. He says first that they are stiff-necked. That is a, a phrase alluding to a people that do not turn in the direction that God wants. Stiff-necked come from the time when they had cows, these bulls that were that were, would be put together in a yoke. And then they were pushed to, to try and pull a cart or to pull something on the field. And then one of the bulls would just stiffen up its neck and then not and then you can't turn it you can't you can't make it go anywhere you can't turn the yoke the the bull is just very a very fat neck don't be like that this he tells them that essentially these people they are like wheels that are stiff imagine being in a car trying to drive the car and you just need to swerve and you can't the wheel is stiff you need to go on to the next lane you try to stiff you try to change the gearbox, the gearbox is stiff. That's the, that's the image here. They just don't listen. They don't go in the direction that they're supposed to be going in. He calls them something else. He says that they are, look at verse 51, he says they are uncircumcised in hearts and ears. This alludes to a people who have the external mark of the covenant, but are missing the main mark of the covenant. The primary mark of covenantal faithfulness, which is a heart that is soft towards God and ears that listen to Him. See, it's very easy to have the... See, they prided themselves on the fact that they were circumcised. They had circumcised bodies, but they did not have circumcised hearts. They had the external mark of looking like God's people, talking like God's people, behaving like God's people, but in their heart, they are stiff, 
uncircumcised. There's no difference between them and idolaters out there. He's essentially calling them spiritual Gentiles, spiritual pagans. You guys, you think that your external religion is everything, but your hearts, you're pagans because you don't listen to God. And then he says this, the third thing, he says that you always resist the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks. He's speaking. He is working among them. And they continue to resist Him. And one way that they did this, one way that they resisted the Holy Spirit, is that they continued on to persecute and kill everyone whom the Spirit speaks through. Do you see that in verse 52? Whom of your fathers... Which prophet did your fathers not kill and persecute? Meaning that whenever the Spirit speaks, you guys are very quick to try and shut him up. When the Spirit speaks, when he says this is the direction, you're very quick to shut him up. No, 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 keep quiet. Can't you see we've got a, a thing going on here? No, 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 we understand that this is your vineyard. This is, you are the one who, who, who made this all happen, but we've got our own agendas now. Shut up. They resist the Holy Spirit. And they kill the prophets. And now they've killed the Christ, the one that the, that the prophets were speaking about, saying He's coming from Moses all the way down. They've now killed the one, the promised one. Oh, dear saints, Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Do not resist the Holy Spirit. You know, it's very easy to ignore Him when He's speaking. You know those moments, don't you? He's just, He's he's, he's pressing you. He's pressing you on a thing. He's pressing you. And you, you, you struggle even to focus, to eat. Perhaps you struggle even as you, you get together after church on Sunday, you get together, you're trying to, to, to make things happen, but he's just, it's like ringing in your heart. You need to sort this out. You need to sort this out. Go apologize. Go confess. Something happened here. This is not right. And then you fill yourself with busyness. Yeah? Fill yourself with business because it's just it's too much to go do what he, he asks ask you to do. Dear saints, don't, do, don't be like that. No one was ever judged for being too sensitive to the Holy Spirit. But people are judged for actions just like those. He is speaking. He is prodding. He is loud. He is saying, this is my fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And yet you choose the fruit of the flesh. Cantankerousness, fighting, evil, dissensions, sexual immorality, licentiousness. Don't be like that. Don't be like these Israelites. Don't be like these Israelites who want want to make a big thing about a place to worship, but do not worship in their own hearts. Let me leave you and encourage you this morning, dear saints, to renew your commitment to the Lord and His Word. Let me encourage you to renew your commitment. Today is a good day to say, Lord, whatever it is, wherever it is where I need reform, Wherever it is where I have chosen the way of the world, listening to the people in the world, to go in the direction of the world, fighting like the world does, speaking like the world does. Wherever it is where I'm listening and and consuming like the world does, whatever it is where I have now gone astray. Or maybe I'm not listening to the world, I'm listening to all my own flesh. 
This is what comes naturally to me, so this is what I'm going to do. Let me encourage you to renew your commitment today to be aluminium. Bend. Bend. Be aluminium. Think like I am a person who is always going to be told to bend here and bend here and bend here and bend here in accordance with the will of God. I am not set. My way is not set. My, the only way that is set is that I'm on the narrow path and that I'm following, on the Lord, following the Lord Jesus Christ. But as it comes to my practice and my thought life and my speech, I am going to continually listen to Him, hear Him tell me how I need to change. Renew your commitment this morning to the Lord. Let me re- leave you with this reading from Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to me, came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. Eternal Spirit, make us this humble, contrite people who tremble at your word. Eternal Spirit, we confess ourselves sometimes stiff-necked. We confess ourselves sometimes looking for a religious experience or a special location or a special person when we already have what we need. We renew our commitment this morning to tremble at your word. Make this true in our hearts. Circumcise our hearts. Make them soft. If any man is in here and is uncircumcised in heart, anyone is in here and is not in the covenant, Oh, I pray, Lord, that you'd save them and bring them in. And for those of us who are in the covenant, those of us who've come to the Lord Jesus, oh, we pray that whatever sensitivity in the circumcision of our hearts has been lost, we ask now that you renew it. Whatever sensitivity is lost in our hearts towards you speaking, when we have now made ourselves calloused, where we've made our, our hearts like the, the edge of our, of our feet, the soles of our feet. It's just hard and rough. Oh, we pray that you would renew it. Start poking in. Apply the right remedy. And make us tremble at your word. Amen.